Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is one we can't just fit into one episode. I never know what I'm getting into when I start researching a case, and this one, this one was different. Me nor anyone else could have ever imagined what they would find when a 21-year-old girl went missing just yards from her house. This is the story of Sierra Joggin. Twenty-year-old Sierra Joggin was a born and bred country girl. She was living in Farmtown, Ohio, technically Fulton, right near the border of Michigan. In the summer months, all you saw when you walked out of your house were cornfields on either side of you, seven foot stalks as far as the eye could see. The way Fulton County is set up is kind of like a grid. You have county roads one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you get it, all one mile apart. And then you have county roads C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, you get it, also one mile apart. And the only reason you drive these roads is because you live in the area. It's not a place you wind up on accident. Sierra was a hard worker who always had her goals in mind. She never stopped. She'd been dating her boyfriend, Josh, since middle school. I mean, not that there's a ton of eligible bachelors in small towns, but she knew that she landed a good one and the two stuck together for damn near a decade. They lived just a couple miles apart from one another and Sierra and Josh would bike to each other's houses on a daily basis. Josh on his motorcycle and Sierra on her purple bike. Biking was something she loved. Everything was so quiet and calm around there, nothing but you and nature. Occasionally, she'd pass a vehicle or a jogger or some neighbors, all of whom she'd known her entire life. Everything about this county was comfortable. Sierra and Josh had planned to build a future together, and Josh had suggested getting married, but Sierra wasn't there yet, and not because she didn't love him, but because she had goals and she wanted to finish school before she settled down, and Josh was okay with that because he wanted whatever was best for Sierra. Whatever made her happy made him happy. At about 6.45 p.m. on July 19, 2016, Josh and Sierra had been hanging out all day and she decided it was probably time to head back home. So she hopped on that purple bike of hers and Josh hopped on his motorcycle and they rode together to the halfway point between their houses, which winds up being the intersection of County Road 6 and 120. Josh snapped a picture of the two of them on his Snapchat before turning around and heading back to his house. And Sierra enjoyed a nice quiet bike ride back to her place. She passed a jogger. She passed a van. She waved to some neighbors who were out playing in their front yard. It was like any other normal day or so she thought. Josh hadn't heard from Sierra since they parted ways. So around 10 PM, he tried to call her, but he got her voicemail. No rings, just voicemail. In case it was just because of bad service, or maybe she was in the middle of a text or was trying to call him at the same time or something, he tried to call her a few more times, but every single time he got the same thing. He's a little worried at this point, so to be on the safe side, he called Sierra's mom to see if she was home. You know, maybe her phone had just died or something, but Sierra's mom's heart stops. She thought Sierra was with him. Sierra had never come home. Everyone starts to panic, Josh's family and Sierra's family. At 10.50 that night, Sierra's mom called 911 to report her daughter missing, and the search began immediately. She hadn't been seen in four hours, even though Josh had ridden beside her half the way between both of their houses. 
Police don't waste any time here and come out in full force, setting up a command post at Evergreen High School about two and a half miles south of where Josh had last seen Sierra. They begin by following the path that she would have traveled home, and at 12.03 a.m. on the 20th, they find her purple bike near the intersection of County Road 6 and T. It was just a 100 yards from her driveway. They found it three or four rows deep into a cornfield on the side of the road, which to non-farm people sounds pretty extensive, but it's really just a foot or two off the road. But the bike wasn't just laying there. Everything around it had been trampled like there had been some kind of struggle. And in the process of that struggle, her sunglasses were knocked off and were found laying on the ground beside her bike. You have to wonder how no one saw this happen. I mean, like I said, she saw a jogger, she saw a van, she passed some neighbors, and they all remembered seeing her. How did something happen on the side of this cornfield and no one saw a thing? Josh's aunt joins the website Web Sleuths to aid in the search and justice for her nephew's girlfriend, and she says that when she stood where Sierra's bike was found, you couldn't see anything. The seven-foot-tall corn stalks were the perfect cover. You saw corn on the left, and you saw corn on the right, and that was it. The police try to ping her cell phone, and it's obviously not pinging anymore because it's been turned off, but people get a little hope when the last pings showed her near the Michigan border. But she literally lived on the Michigan border, and with the cell phone tower having a 10 to 12 mile radius, all it wound up telling anyone was that Sierra was near her home when the phone was turned off, so it's kind of a bust. You'll remember that Josh took that Snapchat photo of him and Sierra before they parted ways. And in the photo, Sierra was wearing a Fitbit. So maybe that was still tracking her heart rate or her location, anything. But that's a bust too. Her Fitbit was broken. So her cell phone and her Fitbit are a dead end and we're back to square one. This case gets a really quick upgrade, though, and it makes the hairs on the backs of the locals' necks stand up. The Ohio BCI and the literal, actual FBI showed up. If it was a missing child, this wouldn't be so out of the ordinary, but Sierra's 20. No one's complaining, though. Everyone loves Sierra, and they want to bring her home, and additional resources are welcomed. Helicopters are seen day and night hovering over the cornfields using infrared technology. They use drones. They even call in a specially trained dog from another area of Ohio, all to help find Sierra. 60, and I repeat, 60 firemen walk into the cornfields together just to look. Look for anything. For shoes, her watch, her phone, her anything that might lead to Sierra. At 4 p.m. on the 20th, law enforcement holds their first press conference and tell everyone that unfortunately they haven't found anything yet, but they're confident that they will find Sierra. The next day, the 21st, the search is expanded from County Road 4 to County Road 8, which is four miles across, two miles in one direction, two miles in the other, from where Sierra's bike was found, and every ounce of this four square miles is farmland. If Mufasa took you to the roof of one of the barns in this search radius and said, everything the light touches is your kingdom, you'd be the Lion King of a shitload of corn and soybeans. As early as 8 a.m., helicopters are back in the sky. More canines are on the ground looking for scent trails or any trace of human decomposition. The Red Cross is at the command post, help keeping the searchers hydrated and fed. It was 
blazing hot, like real feel 106 degrees hot. But none of the more than 100 volunteers that came out to search gave a rat's ass about the heat. The only thing on their minds was Sierra. Some of them stood at the intersections of county roads holding up signs that said help find Sierra. Some flagged down passing cars to ask if they'd seen her and pass out missing persons flyers. Others searched on foot looking through cornfields, soybean fields, outhouses, construction sites, dirt piles, ditches, barns, train tracks, and everything in between. Police hold their second press conference that afternoon, and it's just kind of one of those, they're going to want an update, so we're going to give them one, but there's no update kinds of press conferences. They do, however, ask that anyone with security cameras check the footage from the 19th to see if they notice anything suspicious, and if they do, to contact police. The search continues after the update, and some random-ass news outlet that doesn't exist anymore incites panic by saying someone had found Sierra's cell phone four to five miles from where they had found her bike. This had everyone wondering what the fuck was going on. Their entire search radius is two miles in either direction of where her bike was found. If her cell phone was found four to five miles away, why in the fuck are they searching where they are? This asshole outlet also states that police, who mentioned none of this at the press conference that had just ended, we're looking at Sierra's disappearance as suspicious, but not as a runaway or an abduction. I think we can gather that police consider this a suspicious circumstance based on the fact that there was obviously a struggle around where her bike and sunglasses were found. But again, police said none of this. So where in the Sam Hill is this coming from? This is where Josh's aunt comes in and saves the day and really becomes one of my favorite people in this case. She takes the web sluice and basically calls the outlet out on their bullshit. Sierra's phone had not been found, but she does make a point to say that police are refusing to call this a kidnapping and says the police are even getting upset when they use that word. I'm going to swoop in on my pedicopter real quick, but uh, kidnapping, kidnapping, kidnapping. I mean, if this wasn't an abduction, what was it? Aliens? Maybe the police are doing their normal song and dance where there's no concrete evidence like the kidnapper or a straight up video of the kidnapping. So they're going to avoid inciting public panic by calling a spade a spade. But maybe it's time to fucking panic. I mean, a grown ass woman is missing from her bike, a football field away from her driveway. It's probably time to freak out a little bit. This isn't a town where people walk in pairs, hold flashlights, and lock their doors, but it might be time to make some changes in lieu of recent events. Anyways, on the afternoon of the 21st, this crazy-ass storm rolls through and police shut down all the searches, which pisses off a lot of people. These volunteers were Sierra's family and friends, and they didn't care if a tornado was about to touch down. They wanted to search through it. But they have to listen to law enforcement, so everyone shelters, and admittedly, this storm is fucking bananas, but like all storms do, it passes, and the sun comes out, and everyone's ready to go back into the fields, but the search is never continued. They just tell everyone to pack up and go home, and no one understands why. That night, the FBI hold their third press conference where they take questions and it gets real specific real fast. An interviewer asked about a particular barn in the area and they're told no comment. When asked if they have any persons of interest, they're told no comment. When asked if Sierra had been found, they again say no comment. No comment 
isn't a no, which is more important than it not being a yes. If something is totally unrelated, police are going to tell you. They're not going to send the media on a wild goose chase that will confuse the fuck out of the general public. So while no comment sounds annoying and evasive, I live for a no comment. No comment means we're getting somewhere. There's something going on at this barn, wherever this barn is. The reporter asked about it for a reason, and I'm guessing while the volunteers were searching a specific area, news crews were canvassing the area and noticed a heavy police presence that everyone else wasn't aware of. This barn has to belong to someone, which is where I'm guessing the person of interest question came from. If the guy who owns the barn has been cleared, there would be no persons of interest and that no comment would have just been a no, but it wasn't. So it sounds to me like we finally have a place and a person of interest, but who is it and where is this barn? Now, let's get to that question about whether or not Sierra had been found. If she had been found, it would make sense as to why the search had never been continued after the storm, but as of yet, her family hadn't been notified of anything. So it could be that she had been found and police needed to talk to the family before making that announcement. Or it could be that officers are still out looking for her and honestly just don't know yet if any of them came across Sierra. No comment never just means no comment. The following morning, July 22nd, volunteers are geared up and ready at 8 a.m. for the next scheduled search, but they're told to hold off until noon and are given no explanation as to why. So they wait and they stew. They're pissed, just standing around watching the perfectly good daylight turn into afternoon. And that annoyance turns into shock when their phones start pinging with news alerts. ABC 13 reports that a 57-year-old man named James Dean Worley has been charged with the abduction of 20-year-old Sarah Joggin. He was arrested at his home on County Road 6. He lived only five and a half miles south of Sierra on the exact same road. Who even is this guy and where in the free hell did he come from? What led police to him? Why had volunteers been searching this four-mile stretch to the left and right of the crime scene when police were gathering evidence and making an arrest five miles south? This is a county where everyone knows everyone and no one knew James. I mean, a few people had run into him here and there and recognized his face, but he had no friends. No one knew anything about him. But we were all about to learn something about him that would change the tone of this case forever. As soon as the arrest of James Dean hits the news, sleuths come out of the woodwork and find a previous arrest for him back in 1990. He was charged and convicted of abduction. And that's not even the scariest part. In that 1990 abduction, James saw a young woman named Robin Gardner riding her bike down a rural country road. This sounds eerily familiar. He passed her, turned around, then got behind her and bumped her bike with his truck. When she fell into the ditch, James bashed her on the head, hoping to knock her out, fracturing her skull then forced her into his truck, holding a flathead screwdriver to her neck. There, he handcuffed her and told her to do what he said or he would kill her. But Robin was able to free herself 
from the handcuffs and jump out of one of the truck doors just as a motorcycle happened to be driving by. The motorcyclist saw her bloody and in a panic and let Robin hop on the back of his motorcycle and he drove her to the hospital. James was arrested a few days later and entered an Alford plea, which means he doesn't admit guilt, but it goes on record as guilty. He was sentenced to four to ten years in prison, and you'll be shocked to know that he served every single day of it. Just kidding. He was released after only three fucking years. Why don't we give actual sentences, not just random ass numbers they pull out of a hat that mean jack shit in the long run? He was released in December of 1993 and left to go on doing whatever the fuck it was that he did, which 100% involved assaulting women on bikes. Robin's abduction was 26 years before Sierra's. What are the chances that he kept the same exact MO and took a 26-year break? Zero. There is a 0% chance. But let's get back to this arrest. James's charge is abduction in the third degree, which according to the Ohio State Code means that Sierra was held in a condition of involuntary servitude. He's held without bond and makes a really odd request. Obviously, when you can't afford an attorney, one is appointed to you, and James claims he only made $1,000 in 2015 despite owning a car repair business and requests a specific public defender, which I've never seen done before. But what do you say? No. I mean, if you do, you risk an appellate process where he argues that he wasn't given the appropriate counsel or some kind of cockamamie bullshit like that. He requested the attorney Mark Powers, saying they worked together in the past and he needed someone he could trust. I dug as hard as I possibly could, looking up all of his past charges for abduction, drugs, and being in possession of a gun as a felon, and I saw no trace of Powers. It wasn't until I found an old bankruptcy filing that Powers popped up. And James got what he wanted. Kind of. He was assigned a different attorney who actually wound up filing to withdraw from James's defense, which I would too. And then Mark Powers stepped up to the plate. I've never seen a case before this one where someone had the balls to request a specific public defender. It's also telling that James said he needed someone he could trust. I mean, doesn't everyone? This isn't something he hasn't been charged with before. So is he indicating in so few words that maybe this time's different? Maybe this time it's bigger? I've said it before and I'm saying it again. If you think the sex offender registry is terrifying, think about the registries that are not out there. This man had abducted, beaten, handcuffed, and threatened to kill a woman and was just out walking the streets like any other Tom, Dick, and Harry. Having just learned all this yourself, you may have forgotten that there were 100 volunteers waiting to get their search on who were just standing there with their jaws on the ground, having just learned all this for themselves from their phones. Not from law enforcement, not from a press conference, from a news notification to their cell phone. The search had been delayed because authorities from the local police department, Ohio BCI, and the FBI had been at James Worley's property since the night before, searching and searching and searching, and they were still currently searching. Volunteers, neighbors, news vans, spectators, basically anyone with two legs and a heartbeat headed over to James's property and just watched. They stand on the street as an ambulance and four BCI vans roll up the driveway and they're all just left there in silence to wonder what in the world is going on. 
What led them to James? What probable cause did they have to arrest him? What did they find in this barn? What did they find at his house? No one knows yet. A press conference is scheduled for noon, but like the search was earlier, it gets pushed back. No explanation, nothing. And while they wait for the presser, authorities make everyone watching the investigation step back. Way back. And whenever this happens, it's usually because they don't want anyone recording to catch something on film that police haven't processed or explained yet. It's kind of like the first step before putting up tents. When we see tents, we know they're concealing evidence from aerial photography, and this kind of has the same purpose. Eventually, the press conference begins, and everyone's fearing the worst, but it doesn't exactly go down that way. They say that Sierra still hasn't been found, but they're searching James's property for any evidence that she might have been there. It's short and sweet, and they wrap it up by saying they plan to have another update within the next few hours. And with that, everyone is back to waiting and watching, and more phones are pinging. One is an update from Joe Stahl from WTOL, who says that he counted 18 BCI agents at James's barn. And that's just the BCI that doesn't take into account the other agencies searching the rest of his property, like his actual house. This seems like overkill, but is it? Are we still just investigating the disappearance of one 20-year-old girl who vanished while riding her bike? Or are we looking at something a lot bigger and we just don't know it yet? As onlookers watch from wherever they can, they see authorities remove an excavator from the barn. And those are huge. Think of the biggest tractor you can imagine. The one with the bendy crane arm thing that has the big digger on the end. That's an excavator. Then another excavator is removed from the barn. This should give you an idea of just how fucking big this barn is. They remove some more equipment, and every time they take something out, more agents go in, and eventually, the all-telling tent is put up. We now know for certain that something has been found in that barn, and they don't want the media or the public to see what it is. As the afternoon turns into evening, they actually start using one of those excavators and start digging near a tree line, which begs the question, what's under the tent? And if they have evidence in the tent, what are they digging for? Finally, police are ready to give that second update, and at 5 o'clock, they say they have found physical evidence on James's property, but don't specify what it is. They say they're expediting it all to the lab for quick analysis, but they still have not found Sierra. And because of that, say that they have no reason to believe she's not still alive, which is typical American police jargon for saying they haven't found any lethal amounts of blood or anything that would indicate death, and they haven't found a body yet, so they're not going to say anything other than the fact that it's possible that Sierra might still be alive. The press conference ends and doesn't offer much other than more questions. Again, what was found on James's property? What is under the tent? What are they digging for? When will they be updating again? Sierra and Josh's family are waiting on pins and needles. They want to do anything they can to help find Sierra, but there's nothing they can do. Law enforcement has taken over the search, and they're instructed to wait until the following morning, where they'll be doing another update at 10 a.m. For real, though, I'm getting tired of waiting, and we're in fast-forward mode over here. But they wait, and while they wait, an old acquaintance of James comes out of the woodwork and says that she knew him loosely when she was growing up and claims that he had assaulted and raped women in the past. She even goes as far as to say that a prostitute went missing after spending the night with him, but that it was never pursued because she was a lady of the night. 
One of the onlookers from earlier in the day who says that they were recording the search with their cell phone claims that they overheard someone mention that they had found Sierra's shoe in the barn and that they'd found photos of other missing women. Now, this can't be substantiated by anything at the time, but it's worth mentioning. The hours pass slower than a microwave minute, but finally, 10 a.m. rolls around, and while there's a podium set up with microphones from news stations from all around Ohio waiting for someone to speak into them, there's no one standing in front of it. So everyone waits. 11 a.m. comes and goes, and still, there's nothing. Finally, at noon, someone steps behind the podium, and the look on their faces tells everyone what they've been dreading. At noon on July 23rd, police announced that the night before, at around 6 p.m., just an hour after their press conference, authorities were doing a grid search when they stumbled across the remains of a woman they believed to be Sierra Joggin buried in a shallow grave between roads J and K, just one street behind James's property. They send her remains to the Lucas County Coroner's Office for identification, but really there's no question. Josh's aunt tells Web Sleuths that James had just thrown her out like she was trash into the hot sun. The community had been under a heat advisory to not even go outside unless absolute necessary. If Sierra had been exposed to the elements this entire time, her stage of decomposition would be pretty extreme. Sierra's family is devastated. They hadn't been sleeping and their worst nightmare just became the reality and Josh is blaming himself. What if he had just driven her all the way to her house? He has a million what ifs, but none of this is Josh's fault. Josh went above and beyond. How many boyfriends who live that close to their girlfriend's house would ride next to them half the way there? How many boyfriends would take the initiative to call their girlfriend's parents when their phone is going straight to voicemail? Josh is boyfriend of the freaking year here. Josh is what got this search started as early as it did. Everyone is in shock and mourning, but the police don't skip a beat. They're still on James's property, which they haven't left since the night he was arrested. But this day, they're seen bringing in their own digging equipment. If they've already found Sierra's body, what are they digging for? Ambulances and police vehicles are seen blocking off a portion of County Roads 5 and 6, and officers are seen searching through the woods, and by the next day, the Ohio Attorney General himself comes to the scene. This, whatever this is, is so much bigger than we realize. On July 26th, the coroner confirms through fingerprints that the remains found behind James's property do in fact belong to Sierra. They believe she died sometime between the 19th and the 22nd. And the fact that they can't pinpoint it closer than that makes me think that her state of decomposition is a major factor. But with all that, James Worley is finally and officially charged with aggravated murder and the horrors of this case are just beginning. On July 28th, we finally learn a little about what led to James's arrest and what they found on his property. And forewarning, it's horrific. According to multiple outlets, including the Toledo Blade, ABC 13, WTOL, and NBC 24, it turns out that when Sierra's bike and sunglasses were found, that's not the only thing that was left at the scene. They also found a motorcycle helmet with blood on it, a pair of men's sunglasses, and a screwdriver. You'll remember that when James assaulted Robin Gardner, he used a screwdriver. 
When police were canvassing the area, they spoke to James, who spontaneously offered up, uh, I didn't steal anything or kill anyone. Welcome to what not to say to police. He continues to tell them that earlier in the evening, his motorcycle had broken down, so he rode it to the side of the road where he saw two bikes. He tells them that he moved one of them, so they'll probably find his fingerprints on it. Oh, and he left behind his helmet and his screwdriver. Oh, and his sunglasses, because that's normal. Only one bike was ever found, and it was Sierra's, but it sure does sound like he wanted to make sure that the police thought that there was another person with her who left on that invisible bike. Cell phone data from James's phone confirmed he was in the area where Sierra's bike was found, but not for a minute or two or 30. He was there for two full hours the night she disappeared. Police make their way to James's property and find the motorcycle in question. And like the helmet that was left with Sierra's bike, his motorcycle also has blood on it. They test the blood on the helmet and it's a match, but not to Sierra. It's James's blood. On what planet does your bike break down and you wind up bleeding on the outside of your helmet? Maybe it was from all the fresh cuts they saw up and down his arms. Maybe the corn attacked him, or Sierra did. They test the blood on James's motorcycle and it's a match again, but this time it's not James's blood, it's Sierra's. So now we have James's blood at the scene of where Sierra seems to have been abducted and Sierra's blood on a motorcycle on James's property. And I think we have ourselves a suspect. They begin this extensive search of his property, including his truck, his home, his barn, and it is like a scene out of a horror movie. They find handcuffs, which we know he used in the 1990 abduction of Robin Gardner, mace, duct tape that had both his and Sierra's DNA on it, women's clothing, women's jewelry, a meat hook in his bedroom closet. He did not own any farm animals, and if he did, I highly doubt he hung them in his fucking bedroom closet. They find a shock collar, a digital recorder, disposable cameras, a nanny cam, guns, and ammo, which he cannot legally own as a felon and something that he'd already been charged with once before, rope, videos, receipts, a journal, maps with markings, a photo of an unidentified woman, zip ties, plastic sheeting, Dexter, a ski mask, and a CD-ROM labeled Countless. Not a list of hits from the 90s, not a few girls' names. He titled it Countless. In the barn, concealed by stacked bales of hay, police found a hidden room that was locked from the outside with a ratchet strap. In this hidden room, they found human restraints, blood on the walls, and multiple pairs of women's underwear, one of which had blood on them. And if you think that is the worst part, you're wrong. Inside of this hidden room is a large freezer, which he had completely lined with carpet. My guess for soundproofing. The carpet-lined freezer had blood all over the walls. James lived alone, but had women's clothing, women's jewelry, and bloodied women's underwear, along with a carpeted freezer in a secret room in his barn with blood on the walls and a lockbox of horrors equipped with restraints. If this case was a movie, it would be directed by M. Night Shyamalan, starring Joaquin fucking Phoenix. 
From what I can piece together, it sounds like James created a scene where he looked like he needed help with his broken down bike and hoped an unsuspecting young woman would come his way and offer their assistance and maybe Sierra was that person. Somehow he attacked her and Sierra fought back like hell, making sure he bled at the scene, but ultimately he got her back to his property. We know that her DNA was found on his bike and on some duct tape at his house, so somehow she wound up at his little shop of horrors, and from the sounds of it, not many people make it out of there. The Toledo Blade was actually able to find a statement made by one of his mandatory therapists after his 1990 abduction conviction, and he quotes James as saying that he learned from each abduction he had done and that the next one he was going to bury. This was said after his first conviction. He's saying that he's learned from each one, so how many are there? And he didn't say he was going to kill the next one. He said he was going to bury the next one. So had he been abducting and killing women all along, leaving their bodies out to be found? Was the stress of his victims being found what triggered him to say that he would bury the next one? Should we be looking at missing women since before 1990? According to police, the answer is yes. In particular, they began to look at James for the abduction and murder of 14-year-old Lori Ann Hill, who vanished in 1985 after leaving a pizza parlor. She was found naked and beaten to death by hunters three days later, just a few feet from the road. The only items left near her body were her socks and her jean jacket. Her underwear was never found. According to her sister, there was evidence that she had been restrained and tortured, and somehow Lorianne's sister knew James Worley at the time of her sister's murder. I can't pin down exactly how or why, but I read a Facebook post quoting an interview with her where she stated that she was inside James's apartment six months after her sister was killed, which would have been spring of 1986. Lorianne lived in and disappeared from Swanton in 1985. James Dean Worley just so happened to be living in Swanton at that exact same time. While all this horrific information is being funneled through the media like a fucking foghorn, Sierra's family and friends are at her wake, literally saying goodbye to their sister, daughter, girlfriend, niece, classmate, neighbor, and phones are getting notification after notification after notification the date and time of Sierra's wake wasn't a secret. It had been published by damn near every news outlet in Ohio. And every news outlet in Ohio knew they were publishing the gruesome and nightmarish findings on James's property while everyone who ever loved Sierra was at her wake. To say that hers and Josh's family were upset would be an understatement. They now have to attend her funeral the next day unable to get the images of his torture shack and what he must have put Sierra through out of their minds. The following day, Sierra is finally laid to rest. Almost 600 people show up to send her off with as much love as they can fit into that room. The family creates a scholarship fund in her name to bring some good out of the evil that took such a kind and determined soul from this world. And while Sierra can finally rest in peace, the case against James Worley is just beginning. James was once a long-haul trucker, moving mobile homes across neighboring states. We've already established that he's a serial predator, but his list of potential victims just went from two to countless. 
Tack on the fact that he also used to get local gigs at the county fair when it would roll in. And again, this case is every nightmare you've ever had. Dude was a fucking carny. His current occupation was supposedly a mechanic who fixed cars and bikes, but he only made $1,000 in 2015, probably from this one neighbor who said that they had seen his sign in the front yard and had taken their car to him to be worked on. Otherwise, it's pretty clear he wasn't doing jack shit. His property had been in his family for decades, and it was well paid off before it was ever signed over to him by his sister, so he really didn't have a ton of bills. Is it possible that James's auto mechanic business was just a front so he could spend time in his barn with his victims without raising any red flags? U.S. News reports that in 2004, James called police about two boys outside of his property. Now, this is the middle of fucking nowhere and kids wander as they do because there's literally nothing else to do around there. So why did he care? He cared so much that he not only called the police, he chased after them, yelling at them, and he didn't chase them until they were off his property. He chased them until they were able to make it to a neighbor's house 300 yards away. That's three football fields. The boys were scared shitless, specifically mentioning that whatever he was yelling is what really scared them. James did not want anyone to know who or what was on that property. Dude was so paranoid that he once called 911 about three lights in a triangle pattern in the sky. Was it aliens? Was it the government spying on his depravity? Whatever it was, James didn't feel too batshit crazy to bother dispatch with it. But there were more calls to police. He called them about a domestic dispute with his brother who was living in a trailer on the property at the time. The Toledo Blade states that James told 911 that his brother was off his meds and trying to kick down his door. And I would love to hear from this guy. One of the calls came from an outside source. ABC 13 reports that one time police were called to his home because a nurse practitioner suspected he was abusing his mom who happened to live there at the time. She had been taken to the emergency room two times for pain and a fall and while there the nurse noticed the way that he spoke to his mother and it caught her really off guard. His mom said that James treated her like his father did which makes me wonder what in the fuck his father was like. But in the end, the allegations were looked into and they found no signs of abuse. But after doing so many child abuse cases, that honestly means literally nothing to me. His victims now include two women, one beaten, one murdered, his elderly mother, two curious teenage boys, and possibly his brother. His only reliable pattern is abuse and it began at least 26 years ago. On July 29th, the New York Post reports that police believe James kept video evidence of Sierra's abduction, and that's a bold statement. They have the videos collected from the property, so they either know or they don't. And if it's being suggested that he did, I'm guessing he did. And if he kept video of her abduction, what else did he keep video evidence of? Certainly, he didn't build all of this for her. Certainly, all six of those pairs of underwear didn't belong to Sierra. Did all of the blood in the freezer belong to her? Did all of the women's clothing and jewelry only belong to Sierra? I'm gonna guess not. Some members from WebSleuths got a hold of the search warrants that everyone had been talking about and waiting on pins and needles for. And holy shitballs. 
The evidence logs have a whole lot more on them than the media led on to, including a shirt with what looked like bloodstains on it, two cell phones, a box of condoms, gag, three disposable cameras. Where in the fuck can you even buy those anymore? And who's developing this film? And the list goes on and on and on, but you'll have to wait until next week to hear just how heinous James Dean Worley truly is. For all the photos and maps of this case so far, check out the case's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. If you like your podcast ad-free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, all of your episodes are totally ad-free. And if you need more episodes in your life, I've got that covered too. For just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. And of course, anytime you sign up, you have instant access to all previous episodes. I'll be bringing Bringing you more about this insane case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 